Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Jason, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data analytics company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Remember, any opinions or views expressed by our guest or the co-hosts on this podcast are theirs alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company they work for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. Today, we'll be talking to Emily White, a music industry veteran who started her career as a world-class tour manager before retiring at 23 to pursue artist management, entrepreneurial endeavors, and academia. Emily has worked with everyone from Dinosaur Jr. to Zach Brown Band. She's founded and run multiple entertainment companies, released a number of books, and now, when she's not teaching at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, Emily is using music data analytics to help activate voters for the upcoming presidential election in November. The hashtag #IVotedInitiative, which Emily founded with Madison House co-founder Mike Luba and Wilco's Pat Sansone, is gearing up to be one of the biggest digital music festivals ever, with dozens of artists performing via webcast nationwide. The cost of admission for fans? A selfie from home with their mail-in ballot or a photo from outside their polling place, though we strongly encourage the former. For a full list of artists performing on November 3rd, check out iVotedConcerts.com. And full disclaimer, Chartmetric is a proud data partner of the iVoted initiative. Without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Emily White. So you really kicked off your career in the music industry as a tour manager for the Dresden Dolls. And you did runs with Nine Inch Nails and Imogen Heap. But by 23, you had you had already retired. Can you tell us a bit about the highs and lows of your career as a tour manager and why you ultimately went on to pursue other things? Yeah. Um, I mean, the highs are, I mean, I, I used to think those were the best years of my life. I mean, you're getting paid to travel the world. Um, my best friend was our merch person. Um, but now it feels like now is the best years of my life. And actually that merch person just joined the I Voted team. So, um, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I started, um, interning with the Dresden Dolls. They were a local band in Boston, um, certainly on the rise, you know, nationally. And I asked them one day if I could be their tour manager. They were going on their first national tour, which was self-booked. Um, but it was also, uh, they were also playing South by Southwest. So I really grew up professionally with that band, you know, just started uh, doing merch and things like that locally, asked if I could tour manage, got a few great mentors. Um, and the day I graduated college, I didn't walk in the ceremony because we were at Coachella starting a three continent tour with Nine Inch Nails. So it was the best. I mean, anyone, um, you know, pursuing the industry, obviously, in post pandemic times, when we get there, I really encourage um, to get out on the road so you can empathize with what it's like for artists and crew members. You don't want to be that annoying person in the office, like asking for a spreadsheet when there's a flat tire and like chaos going on and not understanding what that's like. Um, and, and really, like, even on that Nine Inch Nails tour, um, you know, right when I graduated college, that kind of happened. Like a business manager was like bugging me for stuff and, 
you know, um, Nine Inch Nails production manager was, was really intimidating. I'm sure I was in tears, you know, that first week. But by the time I was 23, um, I knew, like, every venue in America and a lot of the hotels we would stay at better than my neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, so I, I just wasn't challenged by it anymore. I mean, you're both really smart people. Um, and when a smart kid gets bored, you kind of, you know, want to move on to the next thing. So I cherish that time and experience. I, I obviously um, don't want to take anything away from amazing crew people, but I also remember seeing someone who was like 30 and looked like 60. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I don't know if I, if I want to be that, but I was really, I was really burned out. It like, not in a bad way. I just, I know I have a journal entry somewhere that says like five or 10 times, like, I just want to be alone. I just want to be alone. I just want to be alone. And I'm sure that was written in a bus bunk. So I love everyone I toured with, but it's just nice to have your own place and, and know your neighborhood and things like that. And it worked out really well because I was tour managing the Dresden Dolls. And then when I wasn't on the road, I was working at their management company, Madison House, which was in New York at the time. And so we were in town. I lived in New York, too. Lived. I mean, I was never at my apartment. But um, we were in town for a show. And I went into the office and the partners sat me down. And basically, um, one of the partners needed help with Angelique Kijo and Taj Mahal. They, they tried to frame it like, touring sucks. You know, like, you know, come come help us. I mean, it was really just they needed help. So it was perfect timing. The management company needed more help. Um, so I was able to transition very seamlessly uh, into a full-time manager there. So that sort of became your thing. You moved on from Madison House to Live Nation artists. What are some lessons you learned along the way about what makes a good manager, whether on the road or in an office? And does this vary across different genres? Sure. I think it's not just a good manager, good industry person, probably business person, um, you know, doing the things that you say you'll do, um, getting back to everyone. I mean, it's, it's not a very glamorous job, you know, like I was on a panel the other night with someone from Troy Carter's office and she had a dip out of the zoom. Um, and she came back and she's like, we're shooting a music video and the director has COVID. And that might sound like pandemic times things, but I just thought that's a manager, right? Because stuff comes up and you have to deal with it. So, um, yeah, you want someone that works hard. Um, I'm biased. Uh, you also want someone that's that takes care of themselves and is balanced. I mean, um, we, you know, I'm doing less management, but generally speaking, at, at Collective Entertainment, my for-profit company, um, we really like artists that have had management before because there's some perspective and they kind of understand that we're we're human beings. Because otherwise, there can be that stereotype in every artist's brain of like, you know, that we're miracle workers or what they think we might do. So you know, modern management is very much a partnership. So the artists have to get back to us. Um, the more we're chasing, the less we can move things forward. Um, but yeah, any good manager, um, I won't say that. I've always uh, managed by building businesses around the artists and, you know, taking care of fans a very close second. And um, that's what I feel management should be. But really it's, you know, you set the short and long-term goals with the artists. You assemble the team around the artists. Uh, often inheriting a team, maybe making changes, always with approval, artist approval. And then you're basically the CEO of the team, um, you know, making sure those team members are working towards the short and long-term goals. So um, that's what that's what any manager should be doing, in my opinion. And then you actually became CEO of your own companies. What accounted for that shift from like employee to starting your own companies? Sure. Um, we were laid off at Live Nation Artists after seven months. 
Um, so, you know, I think losing your job can be a really good thing. I don't know if I, I mean, I guess I did realize that pretty quickly, but I was like 24 years old. So again, like crying, you know, all upset. I always try to make sure I slow that part down when I'm speaking to undergrads because it's such a blip on the radar for me. But, um, yeah, basically like, you know, Live Nation Artists was a half billion dollar division of Live Nation. Um, the first signees were Madonna, U2, Jay-Z, and Zach Brown. Um, I was given Zach to work on because they want, they were like, um, this is only a million dollar deal. So, um, Emily knows how to use the internet. So go, you know, develop Zach. Um, I didn't know anything about, uh, country music. Um, I, I could see on YouTube, I hadn't seen him play live yet, but I could see he could really play. And I could see that there were college students, you know, at the show. Um, but yeah, we walked in to, or my friend John Rasso walked into work one day and called me. I had gotten in late from New York. Um, and the bosses were all flying to LA to see Zach. And, um, John Rasso said, they just handed me a severance package. And basically, um, Michael Rapino and Michael Cole, Michael Cole was running our division. Um, I guess negotiations between them went south and Rapino just laid everyone off. Mm. Um, Live Nation tried to rehire me like the next day, which I was like, maybe you should have looked at what people were doing before you do a big sweep like that. Um, I was really fortunate to, um, have job offers, uh, um, without getting too into it. Uh, one of the other partners at Madison house when we moved, cause the Live Nation artist thing was in Miami actually. Um, one of the Madison house partners, uh, left for red light. So he offered me a job, which felt like the job I had before high road touring offered me a job, which also felt very comparable. Um, but it was really my mentor, Mike Luba, as well as, um, Bob Ezrin, who was also part of Live Nation Artists. Um, sitting me down and saying, you know, all sides of this business, the indie side, the corporate side, touring, merch, et cetera. Um, you should move back to New York and start a management company. And artists were um, calling me and, and wanting to work with me. And, and, and those guys knew that. And they said, you're welcome to stay with us. Um, we're going to do big things, but we're blocked by a huge non-compete. Um, so we can't do music for a few years. And that's not you. Um, so they were exactly right. So I, um, yeah, started my management company from the couch in Miami because I was stuck there, there in a lease for five more months. Um, moved back to New York, quickly partnered with a comedy manager, and we launched our first management company in 2008. So like you mentioned, you started managing comedians as well, and you've also managed athletes. What are some of the differences and similarities between each talent group, and what is it about music in particular that makes it especially conducive to political action? So I, my, business part, my previous business partner was the comedy manager. I always felt like the spouse. Um, like early on, you know, at networking events and stuff like comedians would try to network with me. I'm like, I, I can't really help you. Um, <laughs> but I worked on all our comedy albums and I definitely learned a ton over the years. We managed Margaret Cho, W. Kamau Bell. We had writers on, uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. Um, one thing I learned really early on was, um, and it's really how my first company came together is, uh, Margaret Cho was doing her first, uh, musical comedy album and she wanted to collaborate with a bunch of artists and, um, so, you know, it made sense for us to come together on that. And I remember one of the songs leaked, maybe a demo or maybe it was a final recording. And my business partner said to me, like, well, what do you think about this? I'm like, great, spread the word. Awesome. And she's like, no, comedy is not like music because you don't want to hear your favorite joke over and over and over. You only have one shot at that. Mm. So that's a huge difference content wise. Although we managed comedians like bands, I would say. We were pretty modern in our approach across the board. Um you know, email list, social media, and, and comedy is a very innovative space, right? Like, 
So, um, but yeah, that, that was a huge difference. And then athletes, um, I mean, what I do is pretty specific. Uh, I was on a swimming scholarship. My parents are swim coaches. My grandfather's in the swimming hall of fame for coaching. So I'm definitely a legacy uh, swimmer. And I really credit my family with my knowledge of the sport beyond just being an athlete. So um, in 2012, there was a swimmer named Anthony Irvin. Uh, he won a gold medal in 2000 um, when he was 19, which was pretty young for a guy. And took a decade off to play in bands, travel the world, uh, take mushrooms, find himself, <laughs> and uh, reemerged a decade later and made the U.S. Olympic swim team. And um, I think making the U.S. Olympic swim team is the hardest sports team in the world to make. Um, it's once every four years, you know, not like Super Bowl or, you know, other major sports that have championships every year. We take the top two in each event. So if you are ranked third in the world and you get beat by two other Americans, you don't get a shot at a medal or anything. So pretty much any swimmer you've ever heard of that, uh, uh, well, pretty much any swimmer you've ever heard of goes until they get knocked out. No one's like, oh, let me take a decade off and smoke cigarettes and, you know, just frankly do what a lot of people in their 20s do. Maybe they don't smoke cigarettes. But um, anyway, so Anthony reemerged with like sleeve tattoos and great taste in music, um, <laughs> made the U.S. Olympic team in 2012. Um, I realized it was a combination of the two things I knew because he was the rock star of Olympic swimming. So I reached out to his website. I've never done anything like that in my life. I said, uh, this is my company. This is my background in the sport. I have a bunch of ideas. I have no idea if you have representation. And he wrote back from the London Games. I mean, obviously, I wrote after he was done competing. And he said, you had me at the word Odyssey. I'll be in New York in a few weeks. I'd love to sit down. So that's what launched our sports division. Anthony went on to win the gold medal in the 50 free in 2016 by one one hundredth. So he had 16 years in between gold medals and a whole bunch of other accolades, like youngest gold medalist, oldest gold medalist. Um, so his story is pretty amazing. And at the 2016 trials, uh, Olympic gold medalist Caitlin Sanano asked me to manage her. She has a phenomenal broadcasting modeling career. She's one of the first female GMs in pro sports history. Um, and then the head U.S. Olympic swim coach, David Marsh, also asked me to manage him. He's a big music fan. Um, and and it kind of feels like managing my parents. But, um, yeah, so that's how our sports division started. A lot of times people were like, that's so cool. I, I, actually, both. You know, people used to be like, that's so cool. You do music and comedy. I'm like, yeah, I was laid off. And, you know, my business partner's boss was kind of a jerk. Um, and then sports, you know, I, oh, wow, you do sports. I'm like, well, my parents are coaches. So, you know, when athletes write to us and want me to manage their tennis career or something, I'm like, you don't you don't want me touching that. So where did the idea for the hashtag I voted campaign originate? And how do you see the campaign diverting from something like a rock the vote approach? So I'm originally from Wisconsin and the presidential election in 2016 was decided there um, by 22,000 votes and change. Uh, it was decided in Michigan by 10,000 votes and change. I had read that voter turnout was down in Milwaukee, where I'm from. And I was like, 22,000, that's our basketball arena. Um, mm -hmm. Why don't we put together some sort of sit concert and tie in voting? And I realized that if we took the concept national, we could have that much more impact. Um, so that's what we did in uh, for the 2018 midterms. We activated over 150 venues in 37 states to let fans in on election night who show a selfie from outside of their polling place. Um, a ton of national acts performed. We got all this organic press. And it was really just myself and an intern. And it was an idea that caught fire. Um, so now we've obviously pivoted. And we're inviting artists to perform via webcast on election night. And fans can access the stream by RSVPing with a selfie at home with their mail-in ballot or from outside of their polling place. 
if they're not 18 by November 3rd, um, they can RSVP with a video letting us know what election they will be 18 for and why they're excited to vote. And international fans can RSVP anyway. Um, and as you know, <laughs> we, we have partnered with Chartmetric. And instead of just like getting artists I know personally or that like we hope people will like, um, we are using your platform and reaching out to the top streaming artists in and or from each state. So we've announced over 150 artists so far. Um, actually, by the time this comes out, it'll probably be closer to 200. Um, but yeah, and the 150 artists have just been from four, from the data from four states, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Florida, and Pennsylvania. So definitely more to come. Um, as far as Rock the Vote goes, it's not something I think about often, other than that I was a teenager in the 90s and, you know, like they're fucking amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've, you know, they have thrown big concerts or, you know, they did when I was growing up. Um, and I, you know, I know they do a lot of voter registration. I have met with them. It, it sounds like they have their hands in a lot of things, which is great. So, um, we, we love all forms of activism. And, um, I mean, honestly, if you, if you told teenage me that something I made up would be in a billboard headline with rock the vote someday, not only would I not have believed it, but I also would have said, what's a stream. I would have pictured like a river. But um, yeah, so we're, you know, we're all for all forms of activism in, in everything, really, not just the music industry. 2018 actually saw a historic high in voter turnout, um, 53% according to the U.S. Census Bureau, which is the highest in a century, actually. What are some of the more notable effects or highlights of the 2018 initiative? And, and do you think you can continue the momentum into 2020? I mean, we're still figuring that out, to be honest. Um, we did try to run, um, you know, an academic study, an experiment. It was a little last minute in 2018. So we'll be able to do that this time because we're building our own RSVP system. So we can ask some simple questions and make it clear like, hey, this helps us and this helps us get funding and, and things like that. So we can hopefully do this forever. So, um, yeah, we were just really excited, you know, in 2018 to activate and engage, um, you know, really venues and promoters. We are very uh, venue facing and the word promote is in the word promoter. Um, and I knew as a tour manager and just someone that knows the live industry really well, um, I had to get, a, get ahead of the holds for each venue. So we started reaching out to venues in like 2017. They started saying yes. And then they could go back to, you know, agents who are holding the room and then confirm that way. That was the most efficient way to do it with a two person team. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really excited to measure our work this time. Um, right now, we're a 30-person volunteer team, and, and we have a great board. Um, so, you know, putting in an experiment, an academic study to make sure um, we can show that we increase voter turnout is definitely a priority for this time. And like you said, in 2018, you had 157 venues in 37 states. How did, first of all, how did that come together? But also in a post-COVID world, obviously, what does the hashtag I voted initiative look like come November 2020? How it came together, uh, we just started reaching out to venues. Uh, huge shout out to Stacey George at Live Nation in New York City. Um, she and they were the first to come on board. Um, C3 in Austin were second, and Peter Shapiro at Brooklyn Bowl were third. Um, if I would have gotten one of those promoters on board, I could have lev leveraged it across the country. So to be able to get all three was huge. Um, once people saw those folks were in. Um, it was, I won't say it was easy, but, you know, a lot of people came on board. So there was a clear strategy there. Um, we used Polestar Pro to basically source, um, 
you know, the top markets in each state. And then you can type in like a radius and, you know, check mark all the types of venues you want. And it's just going to spit out all the venues and their contact info. So we just hammered away at that. And yeah, and now we're totally uh, virtual for 2020. Um, and, you know, using your platform to reach out. So like I said, before we are very uh, venue promoter facing, now we're very artist, artist relations facing. So it is a different strategy. I would say it takes a little more TLC than um, the venue strategy, but artists are just jumping on board and, and they love what we're doing. And the other thing about this pivot is it's actually, so we, had a, we had a few pretty major artists in 2018 that wanted to be involved, but they were touring Europe. And so now we can do a webcast uh, option in the future after there's a vaccine so we can activate venues. And then if, you know, someone's touring abroad and they want to get involved as well, they, they can do a webcast option. So I actually found this um, brand advertising feature that Pandora has, which correlates voting trends in certain zip codes with genre preferences in those zip codes, which allows brands or political campaigns to target listeners accordingly. How is this similar or different to the way you're using chart metric data? What are some of the ways that you are using music data analytics to bridge the musical with the political in order to get out the vote? I mean, we basically go in and grab, um, you know, the top uh, Spotify streams. It's usually like, I think it's 100 artists max or something. And then we really like the top YouTube streams. That's It's, it's so interesting how people like check out different things on YouTube than on Spotify. Um, we grab the, um, you know, artists with the most Instagram followers, you know, in each market. And as you know, it's by city in, in chart metrics. And then we just consolidate, consolidate that into a state. And then what I really loved is how chart metric has, um, the top artists who basically identify from being from each state. So, um, you know, we have these phenomenal national acts, but then we have this groundswell of really amazing local musicians. Um, so it's been really cool um, to see these artists excited about voting and engaging and, and, and interacting with their communities. So, yeah, that's how we go about it. We download the data, hand it to our team, and they start reaching out. Have you or your team noticed any kind of interesting trends maybe when like you're just looking at one city but you are comparing you know the youtube with the spotify with the instagram with the shazam whatever have you noticed kind of like interesting things like come out of that kind of that process of going city after city and looking at that in terms yes. of the platforms themselves for sure um it's just that and you you probably see this too but it what people listen to in milwaukee is so different from madison is so different from grand rapids is so different from florida so like milwaukee was all rap and jam bands um, Madison, where the University of Wisconsin is, is like the hippest list I've ever seen in my life. Sounds about um, right. Yeah. Grand Rapids was all contemporary Christian, which is not a genre I know that much about, but it, you know, looks like, you know, hip hop and emo bands and indie or whatever, but they're Christian. Um, so yeah, it really runs the gamut. It's totally been fascinating. And, um, yeah, we're just pumped to, you know, excite fans about what they're actually listening to as opposed to just like, oh, let's just get some people and we hope that you like it. I think it goes without saying that the, the industry tends to lean left. So how do you manage to navigate nonpartisanism throughout all this? I mean, I voted as a get out the vote effort. So it's 100 percent nonpartisan, bipartisan. Um, that's what allowed you know, Live Nation, AEG, um, we're going to announce, I think it's okay, you know, we're talking to Atlantic about a partnership. None of those public-facing companies could work with us if we're partisan. Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised. Like, we hear from people that are like, 
I'm Republican. Am I allowed to do this? We're like, yeah, of course. Come on, you know. Um, so we're just excited to get people, you know, thinking about voting, hopefully voting. Um, and, you know, to be honest, that's a huge concern of probably 80 percent of the artists we contacted. They're like, you're not like with one party or something, right? Like they don't want to alienate anyone anyway. So um, I voted is, is totally open. And, and like I said, it's like, I think you'd be surprised. And also, like, I don't you know, we don't know people's political beliefs. I don't know our team's political beliefs. So. Um, we just want people civically engaged and, you know, paying attention to down ballot races and understanding that this is how you can affect tangible change, no matter what you want that change to be. There's been quite a bit of data analysis, including our own, suggesting that country music in particular has been resilient to quarantine effects um, on music consumption. What do you think this says about the genre and the audience base or what implications might this have for voter activation through music in country music heavy states? I have to be honest, most of our passes have been from country artists. Um, They make it pretty clear. Um, They want nothing to do with politics. You know, they want their shows to just be um, an escape from that. You know, we respect that. Um, We're partners with Headcount, and that's something Andy Bernstein, uh, their longtime executive director, gave me the heads up on. He's like, we have spent so much time and money and resources reaching out to country, and um, it's just not something they really want to engage with. So um, we definitely have some artists in that space, but uh, yeah, that's our heaviest pass (laughs) genre, if that makes sense. They're just cruising. They don't cruising. Yeah, they're doing they don't it. need anything. Exactly. I'm kind of curious like what your vision is for hashtag I voted kind of like beyond like 2020, 2021. Um, if you've had time, because I know you've been you and your team have been super, super busy, but I'm just kind of curious like what you kind of see it doing, maybe not even necessarily for your team, but just kind of that that intermingling between like the arts and, and the political process in the US. Um, and more specifically, um, if you don't mind me kind of focusing in on like local elections, has that ever been like a thought um, for your team in terms of, you know, like I, for example, just voted, um, you know, here in New York City by ballot, uh, by absentee. And um, I was like, I don't know who my city comptroller is or I don't know, like a lot of these like very local and honestly, in a lot of ways, like very important ways to like how my day to day life kind of goes about. So I'm just kind of curious, like any thoughts you might have on that and, and the future of those two. Yes. Great question. Um, I voted is absolutely not limited to music. Um, we're going to be announcing comedians soon. That's not too much of a stretch because that's very concerty. But um, before the pandemic, I was in touch with the Charlotte Hornets, and there's no reason we can't do this at sports games. Um, you know, we've also been talking to some uh, gamers, also. Like it can apply to that. So um, it really runs the gamut. And you know what? I haven't said this aloud to anyone. But I wrote a plan a few years ago um, when I was a board member um, at a nonprofit um, that I thought could really solve healthcare for musicians. So I know that's a little off base, but um, yeah, I would love to grow. I voted, so we're covering like all events. Um, but then if we can grow beyond that, I, I would love to be able to execute on some ideas um, to get uh, healthcare for musicians. And then uh, what was the second half of your question again? It was good. Like local, like local. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Is there space for that for because, you know, those happen more often and that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I totally know how to do that once we're funded. Uh, (laughs) I'm not saying like, again, to be obnoxious or anything, but um, because it's it started to happen organically in 2018. Um, I mean, actually, our beta test show was uh, Tennessee's primary in August of 2018. 
Um, so we put together a show at the Mercy Lounge. Uh, you know, my client Pat Sandstone from the Autumn Defense and Wilco played. Robin Hitchcock played. It was a really, really great bill. And I remember when doors opened, I like ran down to you know, the front door. And I was like, is this working? And the woman working the door is like, yeah, it's totally working. Like people are showing their selfie and, and it's happening. So, um, you know, that also came about because Pat said, hey, there's this great artist here in Nashville called Tristan and she's kind of doing what you're doing, but locally. And her organization is called Please Vote Nashville. So they're one of our partners. Um, but what also started happening is, I mean, the first one's not too much of a stretch, but you know, a friend from Milwaukee would reach out and be like, hey, how can I help here? And then apparently I have a colleague in Alaska who reached out and asked if they could start I Voted Alaska. Um, so what I realized is even if it's a volunteer, if we had someone in all 50 states that could kind of be in our face and be like, here's our, I mean, we could do it on our end too if we were big enough, but you know, here's our primary dates and I would like to do an I Voted show. That's all we would need to do. You know, like especially um, I, my brain's a little bit in pre-pandemic times with that idea. But if someone wrote to us and said, you know, Tennessee's primary is August 23rd or whatever, you know, I can be here on the ground. I, we'd be like, great. We would just reach out to all the Tennessee venues and start activating, um, uh, those venues. So that, that's how we solve local elections. And it's really important to me and, and definitely a place we want to get to. So you have a new book out called how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams. Before we ask the big question, which is in the book's title, Let's start with who this book is for and why you wrote it. It's for musicians. And I wrote it. I, this is my second book. My first book is called Interning 101. I did not set out to be an author. Um, I felt like I was explaining this information over and over and over. So it was just easier for me to write it down. And now I can be like, here, you don't even have to buy it. I'll just give it to you. And then if you have any questions, let me know. Um, like I said, I'm originally from Wisconsin and it's like, I don't even need to post that I'm in Milwaukee. It could be Thanksgiving or something in normal times. And I'll have, you know, local musicians, uh, hitting me up, wanting to pick my brain, get coffee, things like that. And, um, I just thought it would be a lot uh, more efficient if, if they had all the information written down. And I also just felt that you shouldn't have to know me or have access to me to have access to this information. Um, so I wanted to make it available for everyone. What are some of the big takeaways from your book, both for artists and also maybe aspiring music industry professionals? The first chapter is get your art together. You know, like you can't really move on if you don't make great art. That's really, really important. Um, but I think, you know, one of the most important things is, is actually data collection. You know, collecting those email addresses, collecting phone numbers for your text message club, engaging with your fans, realizing that you can build a career really from anywhere, as long as your art is great and you follow all these steps. Um, so that was really, really important to me. And I have to be totally honest, a lot of my students at NYU, I, I don't know if I should say a lot, but some of my students at NYU didn't know they could record or distribute without a label. And I was mm -hmm. kind of like, and, and they weren't necessarily Clyde students, they were, you know, general studies or theater or whatever. But I was like, what have we been doing for the past 10 years? Clearly not enough at conferences and things like that. So. Um, yeah, there's still a lot of misinformation out there. And then the the other reason I wrote it, which is kind of the second half of the title, is um, I was sick of taking on national acts and finding money for them. And I just thought, if that's happening to people that to artists that people have heard of, what about everyone else? So um, yeah, that's why I wrote it all down. 
So how do you build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams, especially in a increasingly data-driven streaming economy? Um, well, like I said, you know, get your art together is the first chapter. I'll probably just rattle off the chapters <laughs> in, in my tired brain today. Um, the second chapter is uh, basically like putting your marketing foundation in place before you hit the studio. So make sure your email list is set up, text message club. Um, I rarely meet artists who don't have social media accounts, but you don't want to be like setting up a Twitter or an Instagram like while you're recording. And then also start monetizing from day one. That's actually what I did with this second book. Um, when I was halfway done writing it, uh, I launched a pre-order because I was halfway. So I was like, okay, I'm going to finish it. Um, and, you know, do the same thing with your music. If you have a clear vision of what you're doing, you know, a single, an EP, album, um, start a pre-order while you're recording so you can start generating income as you go. Um, if you don't have a clear vision for your project, start a Patreon so you can engage with fans and they can support you as you go. Um, the third chapter is definitely get your business affairs together. Um, way too many artists, uh, you know, don't talk about uh, how to handle songwriting, right? Like if you write all the songs and you go into a studio situation, um, you really need to make it clear up front um, with anyone that's going to enter that studio saying like, you know, I wrote these songs. If you feel that you contribute to the songwriting process at any point, you know, while we're recording, you have to tell me in the moment or immediately after. Um, because, you know, this never happens when I'm involved from day one, but I've walked into situations where like six months later, a producer's like, oh yeah, no, I wrote 50% of that song. I mean, that is so unprofessional and it can hold up um, releases. So um, understanding that, understanding what a work for hire is, understanding reasonable producer points. I'm also seeing a lot of producers ask for, you know, I, uh, on top of their fee, you know, if you're paying their fee, that's great, you know, and then they get their, you know, producer points, which are under five points. Um, but I see people, at, you know, getting their producer fee, asking for master ownership, 50% publishing. I mean, it's just absurd. Um, so I lay out all my thoughts on that. Um, chapter four is how to record with or without a budget. I rarely have to touch on that. But if, if there's a 12 year old, you know, starting to figure this stuff out, that's kind of who that's for. Um, chapter five is music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement. So that's pretty straightforward. Uh, six is on distribution. Seven is uh, how to market with or without a budget. Um, eight is touring. I, I, have, I do have a link in the book. I mean, the good news is I wrote this book with uh, artists in mind who are unable to tour ever, um, be it due to a disability or childcare or whatever the situation is. So all this stuff you can do from home anyway. Um, but I hesitated on writing this book for a long time because um, I, this stuff obviously always evolves. So I have a link in the book um, where I'm going to be posting updates. And obviously, the webcasting space is exploding. I mean, I talk about webcasting, but um, there's so many more options. Um, chapter 9 is on merch. Chapter 10 is the revenue stream checklist. And then I also have a Google spreadsheet in there for artists um, where they can put in all their revenue streams and then project their monthly and annual income. Um, and I can totally relate as an entrepreneur. It's great to get a chunk of money and be like, awesome, I can create, I can live off this for a while, but that's not a sustainable way to be an entrepreneur or a musician. Um, so that way, you know, artists can project their monthly and annual income and hopefully it feels like a real job in a good way. Um, chapter 11 is re repeat and grow. And then, oh yeah, chapter 12. Uh, when do I need an attorney, manager, business manager, all of that? Um, I'm really fortunate to have a blurb from um, Don Passman, who obviously wrote All You Need to Know About the Music Business. And I, I, um, I'm going to have a podcast coming out. I'll, I'll work on it after the election um, based on the book. 
And I interviewed Don when I was in uh, Beverly Hills for Polestar Live in February. And so I reread the latest version of his book before interviewing him. And the first chapter is in his book is my chapter 12, mm. um, which makes sense, right? Because his was initially written in like 1990. And so you would need, you know, a manager and then an, an attorney to shop your music and things like that. But my point is, here's all the stuff you can do on your own. Um, and then here's, you know, uh, what makes sense as far as team members. And it's up to you if you want to move forward with that. Um, there's also a lot of industry people buying my book. So it's just a huge reminder that, um, you know, the, the shift from physical to digital is, is still having effects and there's a lot of people still learning this stuff. So just because you assemble an industry team, um, doesn't mean they're always going to be in place for whatever reason. I mean, there's plenty of managers that leave management or God forbid someone passes away or whatever. So you need to understand everything in the book, whether you have an industry, whether you have or want an industry team or not. Sounds like an awesome resource. Thank you. It's a number one Amazon bestseller. So, um, hey. and, and I'm saying this actually not to be obnoxious, but I did just <laughs> notice um, the graph of the sales because it came out March 5th. So awesome time for any release date, right as the pandemic hits. And um, so there's the March sales and then they grew in April and then they grew in May. So um, you can you can do this uh, during a pandemic. You need to be mindful and the opposite of tone deaf, you know, when you're spreading the word on it. But, um, yeah, there's ways to communicate, you know, what you're creating. Well, let's get your quick take analysis on some recent music industry headlines and trends. Let's try to keep it to, like, tweet length, like 140 characters or less. All right, you ready? Yes. National and company-wide TikTok bans. You know, my students brought up TikTok, right? Because... They're like, is this, sorry, this is not going to be a quick answer. Yeah, no, go for it. It's all good. <laughs> um, they're like, you know, what do you think? There's all these panels about TikTok. And I'm like, well, what do you think? And undergrads were like, um, this is, we're too old for this. This is for our younger siblings. But then my students from China were like, in China, it's all our parents. We're not into it either. So um, oh look, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on the Chinese government, but it's obviously a completely different government and society than ours. I'm not on TikTok, mostly because I'm like not really the demographic. So um, at the same time, I mean, Facebook isn't doing the best stuff. Um, Facebook owns Instagram. So I just think whether it's, you know, a government that's kind of the complete opposite of ours or a U.S. company, um, you just have to be smart about your data, you know, and you have to, you know, understand the power of these things. I Believe it or not, I would not be on social media if I didn't have to like promote our artists and spread the word on what we're doing. Okay, next one. Spotify's launch in Russia. I think that's great. Uh, there's a lot of great Russian artists. I mean, Russia's a pretty wild place, but I've got Russian friends and I know Russian musicians and um, I'd rather see Spotify there than, um, <laughs> again, not a speed round, not, uh, not to compare everything to sports. <laughs> it's all but, good. Um, considering, you know, uh, Rusada, you know, like Russian anti-doping is very involved with doping. I would rather see Spotify in there than uh, whatever the Russian government version is, Frank. If it's anything like how they deal with athletes. Third and final one. Nielsen MRC Data's latest COVID-19 report, which found that fans are increasingly less anxious about live events and still increasingly more interested in live streams as well. So they're less anxious about going to live events now. And they're also 
more interested in live streams. I'd be curious when the less anxious part was kind of measured, because I feel like a few weeks ago, everyone was suddenly out and I was getting invited to stuff and um, I wasn't going. But uh, yeah, and now the virus is all over the place. Um, I just heard from a board member who might have it. Um, you know, I told you I was on a Zoom and a manager had to duck out because the video director has it. So I, I'd be curious about repolling that. And then the live stream stuff, you know, it's so interesting. Someone pointed out to me, like, you know, stay at home parents can't always like get out. And now they can actually like chill and watch a show. And I know this isn't quite what we're talking about, but if I can continue to do every podcast speaking engagement, like I am now not wearing shoes, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so I think it just depends, you know, it depends on what you're into. I mean, um, you know, obviously people will be really pumped when shows come back. And I see that a little bit, even in the protests, like, you know, there's obviously like Twitch live streams and stuff of protests. And when things were really wild outside the White House, I was watching one. And it kind of reminded me of like a set change at Bonnaroo. You know, like people are playing guitar and smoking weed and, you know, whatever and hanging out. And I think everybody just really, you know, misses that community. So um, obviously it's just, you know, it's, it's making the webcast space surge. And that means artists are getting better at it, which means that fans are going to enjoy it more. And sorry, follow on question to that. Do you think in the future, once concerts do come back, that I voted will still be just as invested in the digital aspect of it and the live aspect? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, my heart is always with venues and, you know, crew members and, and touring artists. Um, so, yeah, we'll have one team. We'll have, you know, our venue team, basically. And then we'll have our webcast team. Because, like I said, we, we can then activate, you know, um, artists who are touring abroad that want to get involved as well. It, it really um, kind of almost doubled our, we're not a business, but it doubled our, our reach, which is pretty cool. Um, I was speaking in uh, Scott Laguerre's class at Minnesota State Mankato a few months ago in April, and he heartbreakingly said, um, COVID is Napster for the concert industry. Mm. And we still have a recorded music business after uh, Napster. So I'm not saying it isn't incredibly difficult, but now really is the time to innovate, evolve, pivot, all those things. Like, And I actually mean it, <laughs> like not just buzzwords. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting, cool um, innovations going on right now, which is, which is exciting. So thanks for so much for chatting with us today, Emily. Is there a way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? Sure. I'm at EM Wizzle on Twitter, but I would rather, I mean, you, that's fine. Like follow <laughs> me or whatever, but I'd rather you check out at IVotedConcerts.com and all the great work that our phenomenal team is doing. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you want more insights delivered to your inbox when we publish, subscribe to our blog at blog.chartmetric.com. As always, feel free to say hi to us on our socials as well. That's it for Season 2, Episode 15 of How Music Charts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>